ladies and gentlemen, introducing the POD cast. I think that might be the best intro I've ever done. Hey, everybody, I'm John. Uh, welcome to the POD cast, your favorite podcast uh, that reviews classic new metal albums from the past. Uh, this is episode 13, our one year anniversary episode. We do one of these bad boys a month. Uh, and I am here joined, as always, by a man who wants to fuck you like an animal. It's Brian Quinby. Ew. That one's bad. I, I didn't enjoy that. You know what? And, and you know what's sad <laughs> about I did that? It. That's why I did it. You know what's sad about that is when you were doing your intro, I almost rolled in behind you and went womp, 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 womp. <laughs> Just really gave you like a like the full on. I wish I had like a, like a vocoder or whatever so I could be like, this is like uh, the, the robot voice they got going there or whatever. Uh, Dan, put that in the, uh, y- you know, make that happen, please. Make the yeah. whole podcast done with that pedal, <laughs> actually. People Love would that. be so upset. They would hate every second of this show uh, if we did that. Uh, as you may have guessed, I mean, you can tell by the title of the show, uh, but this month we are going to be reviewing Limp Biscuit's third album, Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water. Uh, it was a hotly contested poll. We had three of i think what you could call the seminal new metal classics horns follow the leader deftones white pony and this album and orgy's candy ass on the pole and uh it was uh it was a very close race between this album and white pony which i thought was interesting i kind of thought that follow the leader was actually my like favorite to start out like not not my favorite of the albums but like that's what i thought was going to win um, yeah, and it yeah. got an, and it just got annihilated in the poll. It was never even close to challenging, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, people really like the Deftones, and Deftones uh, uh, mania is at a fever pitch right now. That's true. They got the new album coming out. I wonder if, like, do we have to do a contemporary review? Like, are we going to have to do ohms? Like, once it comes out, we've never done that before. But maybe I mean, people I, would like that. I think we should at least maybe make it an option, you know, in the poll. Yeah, we can make it or or, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's weird because I, I, I wanted to do the nothing really bad at, yes. at one point. And, and people we did not like that. They did not want that. They that said might have been no the way. lowest a thing ever finished in the poll. Like, yeah. I feel like it got like 6% of the vote or something like that. Like people were just like, do not. I think what's interesting to me is that I have noticed, and I guess I do this with, there's um, a music review podcast I listen to quite a bit called Columbia House Party uh, with Blake Murphy, uh, who's a Raptors reporter for The Athletic and, and Jake Goldsby, um, who was on Degrassi uh, randomly. <laughs> but uh, he, their podcast is awesome. But I do only listen to like albums I've heard. And I feel like that's the case for a lot of people with this podcast is that they're just like, Oh, I'm not interested in, in listening to an episode of an album I haven't heard. And I feel like a lot of people didn't hear the nothing. So I think that that's where it's probably coming from. They're like, I don't give me an old corn album that I listened to when I was a kid. Don't give me one that I maybe have to listen to as like a 27 year old person. Right. That's what I think too. Cause I, you know, the other thing about this Deftones album is I'm not going to get to it right away. For sure. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, can't. I will, but I won't be. I won't have any like. I won't be able to like critically reflect on it for a while. You know, like. It's. I'm just not in the right place for Deftones right now. It's no? not like. No, I. I haven't been for a while. I haven't been in. 
the right place to listen to, you know, non-metal metal. Uh, you know, some uh, not much new metal. I mean, I, I like them crunchy. I like the uh, uh, more uh, what's the word? Uh, more intellectual beats and guitar riffs. That's not the word, you know. But you <laughs> just put it in, intricate, intricate. Kind of okay, stuff, yeah. You sure, know, there we go. Yeah, yeah. That's like what you're I, feeling. You, your brain is is uh like in knots you need the intricacy well we me and brett just interviewed like my my favorite metal musician right now uh riley gale from uh uh power trip and now yeah. he's dead yeah. unfortunately yeah. but uh uh so brutal i was listening to that a lot because th that's why th like after the interview he was like such a sweet guy that i just like i couldn't stop listening to the album you know what i mean it's so goddamn good and I, yeah i was pretty gutted by that but not to bring the moon down mood down or anything but yeah let's bring like, it down let's bring it way down it's just like this i it's been on my mind it's weird the guy was really nice we were gonna like do projects with them and shit like that right yeah <laughs> so, well i think like the weird the weird one for me with all like i'm not super familiar with power trip i mean obviously i knew that he was on your show and i saw you posting tributes to him and stuff and i've seen other people um saying really nice things online it obviously seems like uh he meant a lot to a lot of people sure. and, the, and the band meant a lot to a lot of people i gotta tell you i know you don't listen to a lot of metal but power trip is maybe like sort of a gateway yeah into i do it because i listen to sorry go ahead because it's two and a half, three minute songs. Yeah, that's but good. they sound like Metallica songs. You know, right. like they're right. really heavy. They're just these like really heavy thrash songs that don't that don't fucking linger on for because I think that's the thing about non new metal metal. It's like the goddamn songs are like they're they're uh, intimidating you know you're fucking scrolling through the songs and you're like oh that song's 15 minutes long and it's an <laughs> instrumental i don't think i'm gonna get into this you no know? well it's like uh i mean it's interesting that we're talking about chocolate starfish which is like the the peak of new metal access like every song on this album is six minutes long for some reason Good. um but yeah no i i think i i did listen to a I listened to a power trip song today and I liked it. And I was like, okay, yeah, maybe I need to listen to this band more. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it's obviously there's a lot of shit going on in the world right now. And I think when we lose, when we lose people who from all accounts and for all intents and purposes uh, seem to be great people, especially like that really, uh, that really sucks ass. I think yeah. you, you had even said, you'd even talked about, us maybe having him on this show i think i, I, remember I wanted to he he asked if we could hip him to new metal oh. and uh i was like oh man yeah because he never got into it because i think he, he's the same yeah. age here he was the same age as me so i feel but he like made he took a different route to so he was listening to a lot of crossover and uh hardcore okay. from new york that kind of carnivore and and uh, uh agnostic front you know what I mean? Like that mm -hmm. whole era, which is closer to punk really right. than metal. And, uh, uh, somebody turned him on to, I think he said, uh, uh, somebody turned him on to something and he was like, Oh fuck. Okay. I get it. You know what I mean? Like I get right. metal now and, uh, got real into it, which is like, that is another way to kind of get there to there. There is a, a way to get around new metal. If you, 
and still be oh, into metal sure. at that time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think, I mean, it's interesting because I, I feel like new metal exists on such a different wavelength. Like, to me, new metal is probably more of a gateway to hip hop than it is to metal, I would think. Like, I would, I would think if you were like my age and you got into like corn or limp biscuit, your the, the logical progression is pro- was probably, I mean, for me, it was screamo. But like I could see more people being like enjoying like the groove and the hip hop elements of new metal more so than like, ooh, I need something like even heavier than this. <laughs> yeah, I need so yeah, and and like uh uh you know, we did the show with you on on the Street Fight feed and yeah, uh one hundred million tons of steel. Great name for a show, right? <laughs> fantastic name. Fantastic. So but uh uh um we kind of talked about new metal and I mean, you know, it's not like I'm not trying, I'm not being like a dick by saying this, but it really was kind of like hair metal, which also gets kind of excised from metal canon. If that makes sense. Like when people talk about metal for sure, they skip hair metal most of the time and they skip new metal because uh, uh, a lot of them are embarrassed buy it and i think like that's going to continue to happen i think the people that like new metal are more people like you or people like uh uh, that listened to it when they were growing up but that's like not all that they're into you know they're they're, you're you don't you don't fucking go searching for for like you know you don't listen to municipal waste you know, you're like just not in yeah, the true. world where you're going to fucking listen to a bolt thrower song or something. Well, <laughs> so I like, think that's the thing, too, is like, you, you know, we've talked about this on the show a lot, but like and we're going to get into it when we talk about this album. Like, I think a lot of people who didn't grow up in this era forget like this music was so fucking insanely popular. Like it was so popular. It was so big that like. It wasn't, it, you know, I, I think where I'm going here is like, I think when you get into like, say a bigger, um, you know, if you get into like punk or like something that feels a little bit more counterculture, then I feel like there's this, there's this want to like dig up more obscure stuff. Like, I think I went through that with screamo and emo for sure, where it was like, I got in from like gateway bands, like in Canada, the gateway band was Alexis on fire, but in the States it might've been like thrice or Thursday or glass jar or someone like that. But then I think that you, you look into it and you're like, okay, this genre has roots in, in like a much more underground scene and you want to dig stuff up. Whereas like new metal was very like populist. Like it wasn't like, you know, these guys weren't making music. I mean, I think some of them were influenced by maybe some more underground kind of stuff, but there was no real new metal to me never had roots in an underground genre where you were like, Oh, okay. I love this. So now I want to go dig up like more obscure or more heavy shit. Like this was just really popular and what was on the radio. So it was like, okay, well, I'll, this sounds good. I'll listen to it. And as we've said on this show a million times, there was only like five bands that were good at it. So it wasn't like there was this extensive catalog for you to dig into. <laughs> it was like, okay, like, yeah, like I pretty much exclusively listened to like five bands for like four years of my life. Right. The, the, I think like the thing is like, I watched the scene turn into the, the, cause I was there 
in 95 i don't i don't want to say 94 the, the album came out in 94 i don't think i was like one of the first people to buy it or anything yeah and but, you're talking corn self-titled when you corn self-titled yeah. yeah and and i was i i uh i got into that in 95 and by the time this came out you know people were i you know obviously some people had turned against this but most people that were into it were still into it and I had this is right before this album is probably when I started to turn to tell you the truth. What probably turned me was the name of this album. Yeah. I think on Limp Biscuit, it was just like I'm I'm fucking I'm an adult with bills to pay. I'm not going to listen to this. Oh, to- I mean, I was 15 years old. Uh, I-, I was just about to turn 15 when this album came out. This album came out like two weeks before my 15th birthday. And I remember the same thing because I think like. It's so interesting you say that because I remember like, and again, we've talked about this in the show before, but I remember like liking new metal, at least for me anyway, where I grew up, it was probably a different experience for you in Columbus, but like where I grew up, people didn't really listen to it. And like, if you listen to it, people kind of made fun of you, especially by the time it got to like 2000, 2001, it was not something that you like bragged about listening to. Like it, it became a bit of a joke if you were kind of still into corn or limp biscuit. And then it was like, it was like, you, you always wanted to feel like it was serious. Like you're like, no, this music means a lot to me. And, and I really connect deeply with this music. And then the band that you really love and connect with names, the album chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water. And then you're just like, Oh, okay. This is the joke that everyone is saying that it is. I, I like. How do you defend that? Like, oh no, no. This is a good. This is a great album. Like the the album cover looks like it was made in MS Paint, and uh, it just like ah yeah. It was it was hard even for me at that time to to get into it. So I can only imagine if you're like a twenty. I guess you would have been twenty or clo- or nineteen. I can only imagine how much harder it would have been for you to be able to take this seriously. I was also like, uh, uh, I mean, it, well, I don't know if it was even because I was still listening to ICP and stuff. You know, it right. just it, this hit me wrong in, in a way. And again, uh, the reason I bring up that, you know, I was there in 95 isn't to like brag about the fact that I, I was listening to this early. It was that like I was there in 95. This album's coming out. It's uh, I'm a little bit older and uh, also just curious about other shit. You know what I mean? And Fred Durst had, you know, been dating Christina Aguilera. He was showing up on fucking uh, Access Hollywood and stuff like that. And, you know, when you start with a scene that that is underground to you, that is this deeply personal thing, you're wearing a corn shirt to school and, you know, people are like, what is this? And then it turns into like, they're into it now you know uh that's the thing nirvana went through when you read kurt cobain's you know suicide note where it's just like all of a sudden this thing that i'm like really into that i think is real is now like a totally fabricated hollywood entertainment tonight thing and it it was i think it like i had felt very let down i mean i remember you know, having a vague notion of what selling out meant. And uh, uh, I think this was around the time corn switched to Puma. And uh, uh, I, yeah. 
I had just gotten to the, the point. Big corn tracksuit wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't believe they they did do that. They they like had that that yeah, uh, bidding thing, war you know? over who whose track pants Jonathan Davis was going to wear with a with a tank top on stage. Right, and and I remember even being a little bit bummed out about that. And I think I also had come to a point in my life where like uh, uh, I I did not want to be. And this is what I was. I'm not like a a, a, a kind of white trash dirt bag anymore. You know, I, I I was very consciously, I was very consciously trying to sort of change my image and and to get into things, you know, that would ultimately lead me to where I am now. Like at that time, you know, trying to watch smarter movies, trying to trying to read books maybe a little bit more try to be a little bit more engaged in stuff and listen to fucking radiohead really yeah <laughs> kind of what was going on you know too, right so um, yeah and i think that's i should say i don't want people to think i said 2002 the year kid a yeah. just before chocolate starfish came out Right. And, and I just wanted to be a guy I was getting in. I, I don't know when the Mars Volta started, but I was like headed in that direction more. I was reading right. spin magazine and it was having more of an impact on my thinking. And, um, I think this album just really the name again, the name comes in, you hear the singles, uh, uh, and if we get when we get into it or if we if if this comes up, it's like this album is just like silly putty on top of a significant other. Like this is a really I think this album's good because they realized what people liked and they just said, we're just going to make that that whole album is just going to be the stuff people like, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this uh, Mars Volta came out in 2003, by the way. Um, okay. But so, at the drive-in relationship of command, I think was 2000 or maybe 99. So it would have been around yeah. this time. I would say system of a down was a big thing too. At that, right. Like I had gotten into system of a down. Like I was like on a yeah, uh, solo record was 99, I believe system of a down. Yeah. And I, I was just on this path to to alt rock probably like more alt rock stuff you know it's funny i'm reading this book uh uh meet me in the bathroom about like the strokes and the yeah yeah yes and right. uh yep. you know all those bands and stuff and, and uh it's really wild to read that and realize that like that was happening in the world at the same time I was listening to this music <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, like doing the things I was doing, you know, it, it yeah. seems, it seems like, so, I mean, like, you know, say what you want. I, I I'm sure there are people that don't like the strokes. I, I like the strokes and I, I think they're cool as fuck. Like uh, the whole package is cool. You know, <laughs> they're like, uh, uh, is this, it's one of my favorite albums ever, but like, it just, when I'm reading this book, it sort of makes me feel bad for what I was up to at that time. <laughs> It just, the thing is, it made me feel it, it reading this and then now having this conversation has me really thinking about like, I really thought I was cool back then, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you, it, turns you and out, me both, man. it turns out I wasn't. And also like, but I was, I did hit a fork in the road and take the right path by not buying this album. I think. Right. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I think like, <laughs> Being a little younger, I don't think that I was really aware that this like wasn't cool. I, I remember Kid A coming out 
And um, I remember Kid A coming out and I remember that being like a huge thing. And for like people in my school of being like, oh, Kid A was so cool and I, I love it and blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is because I was obviously familiar with Radiohead. I liked OK Computer, but I wasn't like, yeah, so Kid A came out on October 2nd, 2000 and Chocolate Starfish came out on October 18th or sorry, 16th. So two weeks after that. So um, I, I remember liking um, Kid A and thinking it was cool. And I could understand why people thought it was like real cool, you know? Um, but yeah, I just, I never, I, it never occurred to me that liking this wasn't that cool. I like, you could feel the tide kind of turning a little bit on Limp Bizkit, And I think we'll get into that, but I think that I, I didn't feel like at the time, like certainly no one, I mean, I grew up in a suburb, a fairly affluent suburb. I was, I didn't live in the affluent part, but I grew up in a relatively affluent suburb. So like, I don't think a lot of kids in my school were really liking the strokes and so like it wasn't we weren't like a, a school where people would have been into like cool indie music at that no, my time. daughter so, goes to a school like that and so was i i i mean you know groveport wasn't like a fucking the kind of like everybody listened to either country music rap or new metal yeah know? yeah <laughs> like i mean there were definitely lots of people that listened to new metal dr dre was huge like the chronic 2001 was like a massive album in my school, but like, yeah, it wasn't. And also too, I think like I grew up in the era where like burn CDs, like just became a thing like Napster and Kazaa and LimeWire and all that stuff was like just starting to be a thing when I was in high school. So it was like kids in my high school would get CD burners and you'd like pay them to like burn CDs for you and stuff like that. And like, it was a huge thing. So, so it almost became more about singles, like popular singles than it became about, albums anymore but um you said you you never like so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about our personal histories with this album in particular so you you didn't even buy this record i didn't buy it i heard it i mean i listened to it a little bit you know i think i liked rolling a little bit but i was really a purist at this time limp biscuit was sort of uh, uh they had gotten uh uh they just had gone too far for me. And, and, you know, I was acting like I never liked Limp Bizkit in my life at this point <laughs> in the situation there, you know, it's like, I fucking never said they were good. I said they were fine. <laughs> it is funny how it really turned, you know, like, and that Limp Bizkit was seemed to be the band that bore the brunt of it. Like, I don't really ever remember people being like, oh, corn's fucking whack. Like people stopped listening to corn, but I don't remember there ever being like this big backlash of like, like, Oh my God, what a bunch of losers or whatever. Like, pardon me. I think Limb Biscuit really was the band that like took the brunt of all of that of like, Oh, new metal's dead and it's Limb Biscuit's fault. And we all hate Limb Biscuit. And you know, and then that was kind of reflected in the careers of all the bands from around this time. Like, you know, System of a Down is still somewhat relevant. Obviously, like Disturbed, Linkin Park, Deftones, Corn, they're all still like relevant bands making music. Like Limbiscuit was just the band that everybody picked on. And yeah, it was it was interesting. Like I remember listening to this record. I bought this re- I bought this album the day it came out. 
And I remember liking it. I remember like really liking it, um, particularly some tracks on it for sure. But I also remember it was like almost something to be more secretive about. Like I, yeah. I liked it, but I didn't, t- I wasn't like at school being like, guys, this new Limp Biscuit album fucking kicks ass. Like it wasn't, yeah, I don't know. There were just some things about it that were really um, off-putting to me. I didn't like the first song, um, Hot Dog, because there's so many swears in it. I like that um, one, though. That one I was jamming <laughs> to earlier. Yeah, when I was one, oh, today, I was yeah. like, hell yeah. I remember being like, it's too, this is too many. You know, I was like 14, uh, like listening to it, being like, nah, this is too, I don't like this. He says it too many times. <laughs> I wasn't... And it's not even like I was some, I mean, I guess I was a bit of like a prude, but it wasn't, I mean, I swore all the time and so it wasn't like I was, you know, some kind of like prim and proper dude who couldn't handle swearing. It just felt, it was just like, what is, like, it felt like a parody almost. Like if someone was making fun of Limp Bizkit, that felt like the song they would write from like a I lyrical he, perspective. Fuck, fuck, fuck. And I don't, fuck. I don't know if this is pre or post but icp actually did a song where they did the same exact gimmick which is also something like you would want to check into <laughs> yeah because yeah, i think icp think so. did it first because they they have a song where they it's called fuck the world and they say fuck the world a, a bunch in it and then at one point he stops and says in this song i say fuck 93 times <laughs> And you're just like, uh, and and like at the, I thought it was cool for ICP. The thing about it is like, people are gonna think this is fucking. Young people are gonna think this is crazy. But there was a period where Limp Biscuit was legitimate. You know, they oh, were yeah. uh, three dollar bill, y'all. Uh, people thought that album really kicked ass. It was like a cult hit and significant other. Uh, less so, there were like people had. I think Nookie was a bad name for a song retrospect you know there's just some stuff that people like were kind of started to grade on people with significant other but by this time uh uh, they would have had i mean they would have had to perform a miracle anyway like what could they have made they would just have to start making some completely different kind of music which i think also fred would always tease doing that you know, he would always, oh, I'm going to uh, uh, I'm going to make something like you've never heard before. It's going to be like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then fucking the album comes out and it's it's exactly like significant other, which is fine because now in 2020, I really like it. But I think I can see where people would turn on them at that point. Also, you know, your audience ages totally. and and. I think that happened too. It's like they they named the album something for the people they started performing for, not the people that they were performing for at that period of time. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really good way of putting it. I feel like my feel with that was Untouchables by Korn. Like that came out in 2002 and I can remember being like thinking to myself, like, do I even buy this album? Like, I remember like, you know, hearing thoughtless and thinking like it was good, but it wasn't great. And you could tell corn was like kind of trying to go in like a bit of a new direction, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't that new, but it was like new enough. And I just remember buying it and putting it on in my car and having a feeling of like, though, this is over. I need something like else. This, like this music is over. Like it just, and it, and it gives, I, I think I could recognize again at the time, 
that like it was a well-crafted album like i mean again these bands had a shit ton of money like it would not surprise me if the recording budgets for these albums are in the millions or or at least in the several hundred thousands so like the albums sound good obviously like limp biscuit and corn knew what they were doing but like that was my kind of come to jesus moment i think really was untouchables where i was just like this music has expired like it's over now and i don't need to listen to it anymore and i could totally see how this record chocolate starfish would have been that moment for a ton of people especially like early fans like you you know if you've already been into new metal for five years and again, like there just were not that many good bands doing it. So like if you were if you were a fan from like 95 to 2000, how many like great new metal records came out in that five years? Like 15, maybe right. like, is that generous? Like, well, I, I think- mean, you know, there just weren't that many good like there were enough like decent records. But as far as like great new metal records that came out in that time period, that it's such a low number relative to like, if you think of you're talking about meet me in the bathroom, like think about like 2002 to 2007 indie, how many good indie records came out in that time period? Like when you think of Radiohead and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the strokes and arcade fire. And you know, like there were like you hundreds realistically at like death cab, all those bands, whereas like new metal, even in it's like, most hype period there was like maybe 15 to 20 like great records so of course by like 2000 you'd be like well this is like the law of diminishing returns like, <laughs> done with this. this is we can't even get good records from the big bands anymore you know again yeah, you're also trying to i i think like some people can like kind of listen to the same thing their whole life you oh, know yeah my dad i know yeah <laughs> mine too actually yeah. but oh, there, yeah. i i know there are a lot of people that can like kind of listen to the same thing their whole life but i i i see it more like a journey and i like to listen to all different types same. of things so like totally. it comes to something like uh, uh i did new metal for five years but then i did like alt rock and indie rock then i did country music then i did i just i move through different types of music i i i'm never going to be a guy that can kind of just stick with one thing and uh it just is a thing that wore out it totally wore out its welcome and it had gotten so bad and it was like every new album you got excited for and bought and we're like "Eh." and i was noticing a lot you know near the end of the time of my time with this stuff i was also noticing that like i found myself seeking out weirder different kinds of things so like it's when i got into far and then i got into you know i had the same thing happen when i got into new metal i was really into alternative rock like Soundgarden and pearl jam and nirvana and all that shit and uh, uh i was like just there's something missing this is like not heavy enough for me there's something i need and then i heard pantera and corn and i was like fuck okay that's like that's heavy that's what i needed and then you know i i stopped needing heavy there after a while i wanted to rock you know and and that's like i i I, uh you know what really ended up getting me was like it was it was just like rock songs that kicked ass the hives were really important to me hives yeah you know that album veni vidi vicious yeah, I think is what it's called. It, yeah. It's like I that that album like blew my mind. It sounded like something 
totally it sounded like something totally divorced from what I had been into, but also kind of tied to stuff that I was into before. Like when I was into hair metal, when I was a young kid, I was like into Bon Jovi and, and uh, Guns N' Roses. I mean, I still like Guns N' Roses, but like stuff like Me that. Too. So it kind of, I just saw them live like Why last not? year with a uh, slash. It well, was very a couple cool. years ago, but with my dad with slash on the like reunion tour and it was dope as shit. They're so good. They're so that awesome. band fucking rules, man. Yeah, Rocket Queen, so just hits. one of the great songs oh, ever yeah. made. They're so awesome. Yeah, I think it's like it's weird how if you look like if you look at music history, for whatever reason, there are just genres of music that are are not timeless. You know, you look at like hair metal, you look at disco, you look at, you know, there's always for whatever reason, there's always, and seems to be maybe about every 10 years, there's some sort of cycle where just like a type of music comes around and it just isn't timeless for whatever reason. And people just get sick of it and they don't want it anymore. And, uh, and new metal was one of those genres. Like, I just I, think most people that liked new metal, I think you could ask them like, Hey, what was the album? Like we've talked about, like this album, was it for you? Untouchables? Was it for me? I bet like every new metal fan has an album where they're, where they realized like, Oh yeah, I don't, I'm done with this type of music. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need it anymore. And that's not to say like we're in 2020 and you and I obviously listen to this, listen to these albums still before we even did this podcast, we still enjoyed listening to them when they came up on shuffle or whatever on our, on our iPhones and stuff. But like, I think that there was, but now like listen and listening back to it for this podcast, I find myself really liking it. It's not like I don't like it anymore or whatever, but it just like, it doesn't feel like a genre that is going to get remade. There might be things that get like, you know, bands that take elements of it for sure. Um, and we talked a lot about that, about like even SoundCloud rappers and stuff being really influenced by uh new metal, but like, it doesn't feel like this genre is ever going to, there's not going to be a full fledged, like new metal comeback. I don't think. I don't think there will be like a, a big mainstream one, but I think it will get very big again. Not, I mean, big in comparison to what kind of gets big. You know, I, I think these guys yeah. will probably sell good tickets and stuff. I think these things are more cyclical than like having an expiration date because, you know, I think it comes back around like uh, uh hair metal was, you know, people thought it was dead. And then there was like a, a, a revival with the darkness and, and dragon force and maybe a few other, yeah, not Steel Dragon Panther. Force really, but there was a there was like a a comeback of it, and it was yeah. pretty successful. And those bands still make a living touring. And I think it just is a thing where like uh, uh, people need a break from it, yeah. and then you can bring it back and you can do it if you add a like a few bands can come back and do it if they add enough new elements to to make people like it. But I I do yeah. think people are kind of ready for uh, uh something heavier now and i think that uh, um new metal is the type of thing that is heavy and also can draw in normal people you know it like it's a, it's got a proven track record of being able to sell millions of albums oh, and yeah. being one of the biggest things in the world and i think that uh, uh that that's a, like a really interesting thought is that it's, it's going to come back and it's going to sell 
okay. I don't know what anything sells anymore, but <laughs> yeah, not very much. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was funny, like doing article research for this episode that like Entertainment Weekly wrote like four different articles about how big this Slim Biscuit album was. And one of the articles talked about how they were surprised that women liked it. Like they were like, <laughs> oh, like women love this for some, and they were like, and Fred Durst is a sex symbol for some reason. Like it literally said that in the Entertainment Weekly article. And I think, yeah, I think that that's like, that that's again i think people think of this music and they think it was like exclusively suburban white dudes who are listening to it which don't get me wrong that is a large percentage of it but it's not you know it, it's not all that um but let's get to the album uh we are reviewing obviously chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water it was the third studio album from limb biscuit released on october 17th 2000 it was produced by terry date uh, which you may recognize that name as the producer of many of the early Deftones albums. Uh, this was pretty much the biggest new metal album ever, or one of the biggest ever. Uh, it debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. It sold over a million copies in its first week of release, with 400,000 of those copies being sold on the first day of release. Uh, this is the largest first week sales debut for a rock album in the United States, in the United States history. Um, it remained at number one for a second week on the Billboard 200 before falling off. Uh, to date, it has been certified six times platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America. It has also gone six times platinum in Canada. Uh, it, uh, it, it, bore, uh, it bore out five singles. Uh, take a look around My Generation, Rollin', My Way, and Boiler. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's a huge album. Just to give you a sense of the scope of this and how big it was. Um, the album has sold over 11 million copies uh, worldwide to date. And these are the countries in which it is certified either gold or platinum. Argentina, Australia, Austria, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Hungary, Japan, Mexico, Netherlands, Poland, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, the UK, the United States, and Uruguay. So uh, obviously a globally massively successful album and it was released uh just a less than a year and a half after significant other so significant other came out in june of 1999 limp biscuit has said that they wanted to capitalize on the success of that record and they didn't want to be a band that waited four years in between albums west borland said in an interview with guitar world that uh he thought it was bullshit that bands were uh taking so long to create new albums and that led zeppelin put out a new album every year so why shouldn't they and uh that led them to get back in the studio less than a year after significant other came out this album was recorded between february and may of 2000 and then released on october 17th so uh yeah a massive album uh brian you didn't buy it uh, but you have said that listening back to it, uh, you you've enjoyed it. Yeah, I think it's good. I <laughs> the thing is, it would be hard. I can't imagine being a person that enjoyed Significant Other and then being like this. But this album's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it, I got all the same feelings I got. It was like listening to Significant Other again for for kind of the first time like having another shot at listening to an album uh, listening to Limp Biscuit kind of prime Limp Biscuit it it really is I love this album I thought it was great and I mean that's putting up black album numbers the sales for this album like yeah. 
It's crazy. They did like 16 million, I think. Black album did. Yeah, Black by Metallica. Thing. Yeah. And uh uh I mean those are incredible. That's like miracle numbers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for oh, no question. Yeah. So significant other, uh, just for uh comparison's sake, significant other has sold at least 16 million copies worldwide. So um, so chocolate starfish didn't do as well, but still like incredible when you think that Limb Biscuit released two albums in two years and they've sold 27 million copies combined. I mean, that is incredible i also think that that little thing you talked about where you were saying they don't want to wait a year that might have cheapened the music to people too because there was an element of uh um anticipation that if albums just kept coming out you'd be like oh i can miss this one you know they might have should have waited two three years and and maybe though, like it's a weird thing where it's like, if Limp Biscuit released this in 2001, is it as big? Like, did it kind of signify the end of new metal? Right. Because I think issues came out in 2000 as well. Um, and then untouchables for corn is 2002 Limp Biscuit released results may vary in 2003 and it has sold just over a million copies to date. Fuck. So, uh, so slightly, slightly worse, uh, but yeah, so that was the last kind of um, the last sort of like big album, I guess, uh, to come out. Like, let me see here. Issues. Um, I can't. Remember. I think Issues was 2000. Oh, it was 99. So Issues came out in November of 99. So Significant Other was was June 99. Issues was November 99. And then just about a year later, it was Chocolate Starfish. Uh-huh. I think they wait another year or another few months and uh, maybe they avoid that kind of fate too. I, I I think it's possible if they would have let, and, and I, you know, from listening to this album, definitely. I don't think Fred was going to take his feet off the gas. Like his foot was going to be on the gas. He was not going to fucking let go. And he was just going to go. And uh, uh, maybe he should have like took a step back. But again, like the kind of fame that I would want, is not the kind of fame he was going for. You know, he was going for like a whole, a, a different type, you know, Entertainment Weekly, I, I want to be in People Magazine, like famous, famous is what he's going for. So yeah. it's hard to tell because I, I personally would think it would be, you know, it would be cool just to be like, hey, we sell a million albums when it comes out. We're not huge, but we're not small. And and uh, we're making a living doing music. I would rather be that than be Mr. 16 million albums to 1 million albums. You know? Yeah, for sure. Well, and they also talk about so Entertainment Weekly, one of the articles talks about how Limp Biscuit actually purposely lowered the price of the record. To make it sell more. So it said, um, this is from uh, Entertainment Weekly from an article uh, from October 2000 um, about how it says EW.com tells you how Fred Durst and Co. had the highest selling debut album ever for or highest selling debut for a rock band ever. Uh, and it says the price was right to lure Limp Bizkit's fans into stores. Best Buy sold the album for $9.99, nearly half off. 
nearly half off of its 1898 suggested retail value and as much as $2 below its wholesale cost. The move angered other retailers, but it certainly didn't hurt limp. Nearly 40% of Chocolate Starfish's 400,000 first day sales came from Best Buy. Right. So, you know, maybe that's another thing that's kind of, I don't know. There's something I've learned from wrestling and from just performing live is when you make things cheap, people don't value them, you know, yeah. in the same way. I don't, I, I like the philosophy of pricing things the way that you have to price them to make money. And then if people can't afford it, giving them to them for free, you know, like that's kind of, of, of the mindset I am. Me and Brett had, had considered, doing one of our shows every week on a stage at this place. It was only like a 40 person venue. And we were like, well, we'll, you know, we'll give it a shot. We'll see what happens. And uh, if it works, that'll be fun. We'll have a little new thing. And this is pre call in show and uh, we'll make it free. And uh, it'll be just a nice little deal for people. And we did it. And, you know, the show before that sold, sold out in a bigger venue and the show after that sold out in an even bigger venue, but that one about six people showed up to, and we pretty much came to the conclusion that it's because it was free. Like it was just, that's the only difference between right. those two shows, you know, it was become an free. event then, right? It's like, people can go, Oh, maybe I'll go to that. But if I don't go, it's like not a big deal. Cause I don't have to buy a ticket. Like I can just show up or not show up like whatever. Yeah, and a nine ninety nine CD sounds like some Walmart shit. Yeah. And the cut, you know, you like you said, the cover doesn't help. The goddamn uh, uh, title doesn't help. The names of the songs don't help. And uh, there's some rough fucking lyrics on this album. Oh like, my god! There's some stuff. There's some stuff on this album that is just really fucking embarrassing you know? yes oh my god yeah so there was some interesting um there's a few things i want to say about that uh just for comparison's sake i looked up sales figures follow the leader did 14 million uh and issues did 3 million so corn's two albums in that time period sold 17 uh and limp biscuit sold 27 so it's right. crazy. Like, I think we think of corn. I mean, over time, I think corn sold more records than Limp Bizkit, but pretty crazy when you think of that time period. I feel like I always feel like corn was like the big brother and Limp Bizkit was the little brother, but Limp Bizkit outsold them by a great deal. Um, I mean, but, but I yeah. think corn was smart there, right? Like, like I, I, I think what we're, what I'm saying at least is that like corn did what Limp Bizkit should have done. Sure. Know? Oh yeah. No, I, I agree. I agree with you. Limp Bizkit also played a free tour, uh, in the summer <laughs> leading up to chocolate starfish that was sponsored by Napster. Uh, and then they followed up the release of this album with a headlining tour, a co-headlining tour with Eminem. Um, so they were obviously, as you say, kind of shooting for, uh, becoming like as, as big as they could be. And there's a really interesting quote from Fred in NME where he describes Limp Bizkit's music as timeless, uh, and has bemoaned the lack of fresh talent in new metal. Uh, speaking to NME.com, this is in 2001, speaking to NME.com at the launch of his flawless record label at the Supper Club in Amsterdam, he said, I'm here for longevity. I'm not here to make a statement. I'm here to make timeless music. Um, and I don't, I mean, time has not shone particularly well on that quote. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, um, this, I found this quite long article. It's actually from a book that guitar world released, which makes me want a copy of this book. Um, guitar world released a book and it looks like 2001, I think, or 2002. And it's just, a, it's just called guitar world, uh, new metal. Um, and it's just a, a compilation. It's just guitar world presents new metal, a skull crushing guide to the monsters of modern metal featuring corn tool, slipknot system of a down POD and more. And it just appears to be, um, articles from guitar world all compiled into a book. Um, and there's an article, uh, from October, 2000 called wild, wild West. Uh, and it's an interview with Wes Borland. And normally we get to the article stuff later, but it just relates to what you were talking about, Brian. So Wes said that Limp Bizkit's writing process was that Wes would write the songs uh, and then bring them to Fred. And then Fred would add the lyrics after, um, which isn't like super abnormal, although a lot of times the lead singer is a little bit more involved in the actual songwriting process itself. Uh, and Wes Borland also notes in this article that Fred Durst was going through extreme writer's block and he actually left the band um, to like not left, but he like separated himself from the band uh, in order to like write the vocals by himself in Seattle, uh, because he said that he, he just needed time away from the band to write these lyrics. And it's interesting. Wes has just kind of like a throwaway quote in the beginning that I think is really funny. Uh, he says, um, they're talking about the, the songs for chocolate starfish. And he says other tracks exude the kind of heavy metal hip hop menace for which limb biscuit are most highly prized. Many of the tunes just have jokey off color working titles at this point, like come on my shoes and nut hugger. But then again, some of these names might just stick. Nookie was a working title, says Borland, referring to Biscuit's biggest tune to date. I just said to Fred, this one's called Nookie. And then he went off with that idea when he wrote the lyrics. Um, which is like, oh. which like kind of shows me that like, I, I think Fred is like even less talented than I imagine that he is. Like he was just like, he's like, I don't know what, I don't know what to write for this song. This beat's really fucking cool. I don't really know what to make it about. Oh, the song's called Nookie. Huh? Okay. Maybe I can, maybe I can do something with that. Um, and then, yeah. And then later on in the interview, uh, Wes talks about writer's block and he actually talks about um, helping Fred. So Guitar World asks, so what's up with Fred now? Why is it taking extra time to finish the album? Does he have writer's block? Wes, a little bit. We all feel that this is our best album ever. I think that's a lot for him. He's kind of building himself up to live up to the music vocally. He doesn't want to disappoint anybody. I've been concentrating on moving into my new house ever since I completed the guitar tracks, but now I'm going to go and spend more time with Fred and try to help out because I know he's under pressure right now. Guitar World, did you have more creative input this time? Wes, I think I've done a lot more on this one than I have on the other two. There's all kinds of stuff going on in my life that's made me be more involved in this record than any other one. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And then he talks about like being on uh, an ADHD medication. But um, but yeah, so obviously uh, Fred, uh, not a prolific songwriter. And I think this is my theory about this album, Brian. You know, on this podcast, we're all about theories. Um, my theory on this album is that this is the album that like really exposed Fred, in my opinion. Like, I think he's, was never a great songwriter, but $3 Billy all was like very raw. It had like a different kind of energy. He was, he was fairly focused. He was like writing songs that seemed mostly 
like vitriol towards a woman or whatever. Then significant other was kind of like a mix of like, Oh, we're super famous now, but I also hate my ex-girlfriend. Um, and it was like, <laughs> it just significant other was such a big leap in sound that I think you didn't necessarily pay as much attention to the lyrics. It didn't matter so much. And then chocolate starfish is where I think he gets completely exposed as like a dog shit songwriter and kind of spelled the demise of Limp Bizkit because I think the lyrics on this album are so bad that the band becomes the joke that like people said they were. Yeah. 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 I agree. I also, the, the, the Seattle thing that you just brought up, it, it makes it seem like he, I don't, I think he was off being famous is really right. what was going on there. He wasn't, I don't, I guess you could call it writer's block. He was, he was busy doing, doing a uh, uh, famous guy shit. Had probably hanging out with Courtney love in Seattle, you know, right. and, or if she's still there even, but whatever he was doing, he was, he was out there acting famous and uh, Wes ended up having to, to kind of make the whole fucking thing. Uh, uh, these lyrics were probably just one day, he would like come in and they'd play the music for him and he would sit down and just I mean it seems like one take kind of shit it seems like somebody doing stand up and telling a joke one time and deciding that's exactly the way it should be told never telling it different again after that yeah you're <laughs> right I mean it's just like even the things like you know it, it's like the the things that the songs are about are like very weird and strange like they're not they're not things that anyone would write a song about you know like like one of the major singles is rolling which is like about riding a motorcycle it seems like kind of like it's just such a like it doesn't make any sense like i think fred's trying to like put max martin's theory to the test here that like it doesn't matter the words you're saying as long as they sound good over top of the beats but like they don't but like fred's not a good singer or a good rapper it's also interesting that like he wrote, he writes a diss track of Trent Reznor. It just uh, by the way, an incredible move there. So, well, the, but this is the problem that I have with it is like, so Trent Reznor is like in the press talking about how Lynn Biscuit sucks. And Fred has talked about how he's really bummed out by this because Trent Reznor was like an idol for him and he loved nine inch nails and he was really hurt that Trent Reznor was like, yeah, Lynn Biscuit sucks shit or whatever. And then Fred writes a diss track in which he quotes Nine Inch Nails and thus pays Trent Reznor royalties on the diss track he wrote about Trent Reznor. Yeah. Like I that, mean, I think it's like such a strange move to me. <laughs> like if you look at the writing credits in the album, like Trent Reznor has a writing credit for that song. Oh, does he write? So they had, uh, he, he actually, I didn't think he, no, yeah, he has, you're right. He yeah. has music credits for Hot Dog for samples only. That fucking kicks ass, man. <laughs> well, yeah, they probably use samples of Trent Reznor then, maybe, right? Like uh, in the song, yeah. Lethal might have used some of it because, like, a funny, like, hey, check it out, man. We're using his music against him, you know? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in like a really 
dumb. Like it's like a diss track, but then he's not. It's very similar. It has a very similar vibe to the straight up Fred Durst track, uh, which for those of you who aren't Patreon subscribers, uh, we reviewed straight up with Jordan Newell. And um, it's a it's a tribute album to the dead um, lead singer of Snot, uh, Lynn Strait. And all the other songs on the record are very like, oh, Lynn, what a great guy. Um, you, we know you're looking down on us, whatever. And Fred is just like the first lyrics of Fred's song. Well, he says limp biscuit to start the song. And then the lyrics are like, all you punks step the fuck back, step the fuck back. I said, step the fuck back. It's like, it's not even about the guy being dead. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like, this has that same energy to me of like, fuck you, Trent Reznor. But then he's like, uh, a fucked up kid, a fucked up test, fake gas titties on a fucked up chest. And you're like, cool, man. You're really, you're really laying it down here. He's dissing somebody else there. Like that whole, <laughs> yeah. What a weird fucking song. And also like the Trent Reznor burns in that song are like, uh, uh, there's not, he's not, he's using his words, right? And not changing them at all, not really being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic, I guess, but not like in a creative way, not in a funny way. It's like, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of like when when you get like a word those poetry magnets you put on a fucking yes. refrigerator. Yes, it feels like he just got Trent Reznor's lines from Trent Reznor's songs and just tossed them at the refrigerator. <laughs> or it's the more likely case that Fred Durst doesn't. He said he was a big fan of Nine Inch Nails, but uh, I, I'll bet you he probably just isn't. You know. Like he, he was the guy that heard the singles because all of those songs are singles too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's very funny to me that the guy who wrote the lyric, I did it all for the nookie. So you can take this cookie and stick it up your. Yeah. Is making fun of a guy who wrote, I want to fuck you like an animal. True. Like, True. You know, like it's like, I don't know that, uh, you know, I don't know that Fred in his glass house uh, should be throwing stones at Trent Reznor for lyric writing. No, I mean, but yeah, like, and also, it, I think I totally agree with you in the sense of like, it, it, it totally feels like one take and not in a like cool hip hop freestyle way. Like it just like all of the rhymes are the most basic. Like it's, it's a fucked up world. We're a fucked up place. Everybody's judged by their fucked up face, fucked up dreams, fucked up life, a fucked up kid with a fucked up knife. It's like, th these are like, this is what a grade eight would submit me on a poetry assignment minus the F's. I'd, I'd be like, Hey, like write about a time that you like struggled. And they'd be like, this world is pretty messed up and it's a weird place. And people make fun of my face, <laughs> you know, like it just, uh, and that's the first song on the album. And again, Wes says that the working title for this song was hot dog flavored water. And they thought they might release it as a single, and they thought that that would be too long for the title of a single. So they shortened it to hot dog. But, ah. like, but again, they just don't, uh, man, it's, it's so what, dumb. I want to say this too. I, that when we, we look at, I want to really look at the core, that, that bridge or the chorus. I don't know what the fuck they are, but when he says you want to fuck me like an animal, that's okay. the chorus. Yeah. You did, you did the nine inch nails line there. You want to burn me on the inside. Okay. 
that makes sense. He's singing it kind of like closer and he's saying, you really just want to hurt me, you know? Uh, uh, and then after that, he says, you like to think that I'm a perfect drug. And like that doesn't make sense at all. Like I, drugs well, isn't are, perfect drug. That's uh, a nine inch nail song, right? Yes, it yeah, is yeah. the nine inch nail song, but using it's like so shoehorned into yes. the thing that yeah. like, well, if Trent Reznor doesn't like me, then why would he say I'm the perfect drug? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't it doesn't know. make any sense. I did. I just, it's so one pass dumb insults it's the worst possible way but the song fucking rules it's yeah. so fucking fun to listen to the, the, oh it the, is for sure the music just kicks ass it's yeah, almost the, like fuck it feels like if fred wasn't their lead singer and it was somebody else i don't know if they you know obviously they might not have gotten where they were but if if uh Wes was writing music like this. Any other lead singer would have fucking tore this up. You know, well, it's funny to me because like I've said this on the pod before, but I'm happy to say it again. Like, I think Wes is the best new metal guitarist. I think as far as like riff writing, like his riffs are fucking monsters. He has so many catchy, cool good riffs his tone is perfect and like on this record especially like some of the some of the songs on here are just incredible and it's just it's interesting to me that quote from wes of being like we we know this is our best album and like you almost wonder if like it's kind of coded language for like what you're talking about where like fred was off like yeah, uh, hanging out at the Playboy Mansion, maybe dating Christina Aguilera, trying to make movies. Like, there's some quotes from around this time about how Fred was starting to get into directing at this point. You almost wonder if, like, Wes and Sam and John, who are inarguably great musicians. I mean, John Otto is an unbelievable drummer. I've said that before. Sam Rivers, some of the bass lines he's playing on this on these songs are ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense this is new metal. Okay. He should be playing like just quarter notes in every song and just having the time of his life. That's what he should be doing. He should just be like, Oh, this is cool. I'm in like the biggest new metal band in the world. I'm going to play easy bass lines. I'm going to get up on stage, rock out, get drunk, have sex. My life is amazing. Instead, Sam rivers is like, I want every show I play to be like a calisthenics workout that you've never seen before. I want my fingers to be almost falling off after every show. Like even when you watch their Woodstock 99 set, like Fred is losing his mind and Sam Rivers is like pouring sweat out of his face, just like absolutely hammering on his five string bass, losing his shit. Like his bass lines are so fucking good. I almost wonder if like Wes, John and Sam personally went to Fred and they were like, listen, these songs are fucking incredible. Do not fuck this up. You fucking moron. You're out here. You're banging models. You want to hang out in LA. You want to hang out in Seattle. We're one of the biggest bands on earth and you're a fucking stupid idiot. These songs are so do not mess this up for us. Uh, and then Fred was like, ah, sorry guys. Uh, I don't know. I wrote this song about motorcycles. I, I don't know. I think it's pretty <laughs> sick. I think it's pretty dope. I don't know if you I guys mean have 
I don't know if you heard this. Here's how the chorus goes. Rolling, 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 rolling. And Wes, like Wes had to be, he had to be sitting in the studio when Fred's like, okay, I got the perfect lyric for this. Keep rolling, rolling. Like Wes had to just like, he must have been so close to just like sticking like pencils in his eyes and being like, how, how did we get here? How do we, we can't kick them out. Significant others sold 16 million copies. We can't kick them out. So I guess we just, whatever it is, what it is. It's going to be what it's going to be. This album is going to be, hopefully critics will listen to the music and have a measured uh, (laughs) response to the album and everything. And Fred was out there making people hate him, you know, big time. And he loved it. It, Well, I think he always thought he could turn the boat around. (laughs) I think, yes. (laughs) He's like a smooth guy. Here's my theory on Fred as far as that goes. I think Fred like I think Fred thought people hated him in a playful way. Like I think I think Fred thought, yeah, a lot of people hate me, but like they kind of love me at the same time. And people (laughs) just hated him. They did. They didn't. There was no there was no nuance to it. But I I, I think Fred thought of himself like a heel. Like I think like a wrestling heel. Like I think Fred thought people love to hate me. Like that, that they like they hate me, but like, but they think I'm kind of cool. And like, I think people actually hated him. And then this record is where people who did hate him or were maybe on the fence about hating were like, okay, no, this guy actually sucks. Yeah. Sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like he, he was doing some of them. He, once you start showing up on red carpets and shit, you like, you lose the metal people. You know, yeah, and I, I think that's always like such a that's what happens with pop music, right? Is like the the especially with metal bands as they get there, they 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 are they work one of two ways. You know, they maybe go the incubus route where they just clean it all up and uh, decide they're not a metal band anymore. You know, which is yep. a respectable route, or they they go more serious and they go much heavier. But uh, Fred decided to just stay the course. I I just, this album, again, like, you're totally right. I think the only way that this could have worked is if they somehow got, like, a really good rapper to replace Fred. And we're just like, hey, and not, like, an unknown person. I'm talking about if they found somebody like uh, uh, Method Man or like maybe Be yeah. Real from Cypress Hill or something like that to sing over this stuff. I do believe it would have sold a lot, but still it would have hurt like the 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 it wouldn't have made as much. Uh, but Fred is who nobody I don't think had problems with Wes Borland, John Otto and Sam Rivers. It was all Fred. And, and you have to be sitting and, and like watching entertainment tonight on your fucking TV and seeing your lead singer, like chugging beers with Courtney love and just be like, we're fucked, man. (laughs) Here's the thing though. I think, I think there was like a charm to Fred and his vocal delivery that I think people did like, and I think it did resonate with people. So I actually think Fred still should have been the front man, but it should have been all written by someone else. 
So like if Method Man wrote all of Fred's lyrics and Fred just had to deliver them, I think that might have been like the best solution for like the music. Maybe. The issue. That's, that's what we're really saying about this album. There is an issue and that issue is Fred Durst and every word on it. <laughs> yeah. Like it's funny when, you know, we've done some of these records and we really like pick apart some of the lyrics from a lot of these bands. Cause a lot of these lyrics haven't aged well, but like with this album, it's like you, you almost, it's like, what do you even cherry pick? It's just like, everything is, there's not a single song on here where you're like, damn, these lyrics are dope as shit. Or like and, these lyrics are cool, you know. I mean, this guy couldn't have really thought that Trent Reznor was jealous of him, too. No. That's just another little piece to this that was like really it's just such a fucking it's so egomaniacal and it's so reeks of a guy who knew he was in the biggest band in the fucking world. Yeah. And and it's just wild to have watched him blow it. I, I think like the Fred Durst reclamation process is happening. And I do think he's probably like been humbled and is kind of a smarter guy and understands, you know, kind what people liked about him. And I do think that they will get that band back together and do something. And there's talk of of them putting out an album in, in this year of our Lord 2020. Really? Yeah. Like a quarantine album. (laughs) <laughs> yeah Wes Borland was fine being in the band as long as he didn't have to be in the same room as all of them I mean that is I, I the rest of them I, I'll bet I, I'll bet you Wes even likes the rest of them this album really opened my eyes to maybe what Wes was going through when he started when he decided to leave the band you know it, it, I, I think like I think with a different kind of mind now than I did uh, uh, at a time where I was just like a fan of artists and didn't understand how the business works and and how how uh, you know it can kind of grind you to a pulp sort of thing you know and what it's like to tour all the time and stuff and uh, I'm like kind of turning the corner on on Wes because it does feel like he was a guy who was constantly trying to do the right thing and uh, um through things that were beyond his control, he was unable to do so. So sometimes he just threw his hands up in the air and quit, you know? Yeah. I I think, um, so I was looking, so a lot of the articles are from 2019 that are saying that like Limbiscuit's trying to do something new, but we'll, we'll believe it when we see it, I guess. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, I, I think, I think exactly. You're exactly right. I mean, I, I, I I don't know. It's hard because I think a lot of people recognize that, that, the musicians in Limp Bizkit are really good. I think a lot. I don't. I don't. I don't believe that at all. I you don't I, think I, people recognize that. No, I think people think the whole package sucks. Oh, I think stupid. that's true too, for sure. I just I, I think new metal fans maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll agree with new metal fans. That's what being I mean. that way. Like, I'm just I, saying, I like people generally. like you and me, like people like you and me who liked it and still like it, are like, yeah, okay, Limp Bizkit were great musicians. And then yes, for Fred. sure. I think. And the then one, Fred. <laughs> well, the one thing that's really interesting to me too on this record, as far as the like lyrical content, is like it seems like, and this kind of goes back to your point about Fred feeling like Trent Reznor is maybe jealous of him, which is so weird. Like, Fred also seems to be like really attacking like the quote unquote critics or the quote unquote, you know haters or whatever on this album like a lot of the lyrical content seems to be directed at 
you know, oh, you don't fucking, you don't like my band. And it's like, your last album sold 16 million copies. So we're like, I'm supposed to buy that your life is hard or that like, like, why are you even giving a voice to the, to this? You know, it's like, it's like Drake before Drake, you know, Drake is really good at like trying to make you feel sorry for how rich and famous and how much sex he's having, you know? Drake will just be like, oh, it sucks so bad. I had fucked like three girls yesterday and it's, it's hot, such a hard life, you know? And this is like kind of like what Fred's almost doing too is like not not in as far as that stuff goes, but there's a lot of stuff directed at his critics. And it's like, even if you had, and I'm like Limp Bizkit had critics, don't get me wrong, but it's like, you're one of the biggest bands on earth. Like, you know, the Rolling Stones weren't led zeppelin weren't writing songs for their critics they weren't like oh man you know we're one of the biggest rock bands on earth but like fuck the critics you know fuck you it's like they just were like yeah well whatever we're super rich and famous who get who oh, you don't like us i don't give a shit yeah i think there's a, a thing of there's something to uh i i think i know where his mind's at in that respect because i have the same sort of mindset of like you just want to prove you're right and uh uh if people if there's somebody that doesn't like you and and you finally get to where you're going and you're like uh i'll call out it's like a kind of i'll call everybody out you know what i mean like i'm not gonna fucking let anybody get by on me and then you get sort of where you're going or or at, to some point of where you're going and you're like well if i don't fucking you know call people out and burn bridges then i'm fucking uh uh, uh then i'm a coward i've sold out and i think right. he was trying to do he sold out and he knew he sold out which is also like not a real fucking thing you know <laughs> i i think you should and then it is now i think it, sure. it I mean, yeah, and I think you should, you know, part of me is like, you should care who has control of your pro- intellectual property, your music and stuff like that. In the grand scheme of things, like you don't want Bank of America using one of your songs in one of their commercials. But other than that, like selling out back then was just basically like being successful. But Fred Durst had sold out in such a way that it like is very hard to make a case that he wasn't consciously selling out that he wasn't, he didn't set out to get to the Oscar parties, I guess. Oh, for sure. But I I think Fred was honest about that too. Like you say, like he knew it, like when we did the significant other um, review, our, our very first episode a year ago, um, it was, we read a spin article that was interviewing Fred and he said that he viewed Limp Bizkit as like a media empire that he like, didn't want to stop at music that he wanted. And he, he framed it all through Limp Bizkit. Like it was going to be Limp Bizkit Inc. And they were going to make music. They were going to make clothes. They were going to make movies. They were going to be this like cultural phenomenon. Like he was always very upfront about, um, being a shyster kind of like, like you even said the, the first time you saw Limp Bizkit open for corn, like Fred was outside hustling their demos and stuff like that. And like, that's how they got discovered is he basically like bugged corn until they did something uh, with them or, or listened to their demo or whatever. 
Um, and yeah, like, I, I guess not necessarily a shyster in that. I don't think that he was trying to pull a fast one or anything, but I just think like Fred's a natural born salesman and he was always just going to be selling himself and the right. product was the product was him. And the, the, the other guys were there and like Limp Bizkit was a band and it's cool. They're in my band, but like the, the Limp Bizkit ink was, was Fred Durst ink, I guess. Right. Yeah. But there is a way to be famous like that and still be cool. And he, oh, yeah, he was not able to do it. I mean, Trent Reznor uh, and, and you know what also could have been part of this is we were watching, you know, kind of a parallel personality uh, rise and become semi respected in Marilyn Manson. Right. And, and like Fred Durst probably saw him and, those they were peers they were like two of the biggest rock personalities of of their time but i think he thought limp biscuit was kind of a marilyn manson thing when really it was a uh, uh way more of a I, I mean after hearing the stuff and and that you've said from those from those articles it was more it was way more of a team effort than yeah. we had ever considered well i think too like Fred seems to me like the type of guy who's always chasing respect, right? Like it was like Fred wanted the commercial success, but he also wanted the respect of his peers. And me I too. feel like, and I feel like that was the thing. No. And I, of course, like who doesn't want that? You know what I mean? But I feel like I, that's where, um, I feel like that's maybe where Fred fell short a little bit, like, or, or where, I think he started to read, like, I think at first Limp Bizkit were cool. Like they were Korn's little, like I said, little brother at first, like when $3 Billy all came out and the way that was presented in the faith cover was so grimy and cool. And like, I think at first people thought they were pretty cool and people thought Fred was, was pretty cool. And then I think after significant other came out, Fred started to lose the respect. Like I can imagine Marilyn Manson and Trent Reznor and like those and, and Chino, you know, like Fred always used to wear Deftone shirts on like total request live and in photo shoots. And like, it was clear that Fred had a lot of uh, respect for what was happening around him. And he wanted to be those guys. He wanted to be Trent Reznor and Marilyn Manson and have that kind of like universal respect of his peers and I feel like he started to lose grip on that after significant other, which was such a bold faced, like I want, we want to be the most popular band on earth play that he's like grappling with that a little bit, maybe. Yeah, it would be nice. I, I should have looked a little bit more for his like paparazzi shit and stuff at that time though, because, cause he was really getting out there and doing stuff a lot. And, 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 uh, I guess like he, there was no mystery to him. I talked about that uh, uh, on another podcast at one point, but there was a point where, where Jonathan Davis was like this really m mysterious kind of guy, you know, and he was like this really dark, mysterious kind of guy. I think he's done a little bit too much stuff now that's like on the other side of that right, uh, right like the south park episode and just there's a, a few things that make him seem a little less mysterious fred durst was never that so like the appeal to him was almost like a working class hero and that's where you also are like there's a fucking way that you can attack Trump does it, you know, there's a way you can attack the like intellectuals and the music critics and the magazines. And there's a way to do that. And he just fucking, he tried, but like 
the at the time. So this album comes out. If it if this album comes out, and it's fucking scathing. You know, if it's just like you're listening to it and you're like, man, this guy's fucking pissed. The, that also takes a whole other direction. Uh, uh, the the amount of work, you know, that I'm guessing was put into writing these lyrics, like they were never going to get there. They were never going to get to that point where you're like, holy shit, man, this guy's fucking, you know, he's pissed and he's not taking any prisoners and he's taking down everybody in the industry. He's no fucking joke. But then he made an album called Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water in yeah. order to do that. And that just undercut his fucking point, made him look less serious. Uh, uh, and now, especially saying the Best Buy thing, where you could buy this album for $9.99 at Best Buy, it's like the reason that this was the last Big Limp Biscuit album is because they made themselves worthless with this album. It's just an album where it's like, it's good because it sounds like significant other. And there's pretty much an analog on of every song on here on significant other. They like basically seem like they just wanted to move some stuff around on significant other, write the same album. Yeah. And uh, uh, which is fine. The one sounds like rearranged. It's like a song where it like specifically totally. is like rearranged was a fucking hit. They're like rearranged was a like hit, that. and nobody likes you was dope. So we'll just get Scott Weiland to sing on this song on this new version of rearranged. Right. <laughs> no, I guess it, he's on hold on Scott Weiland, right? Yeah. Or there's the songs that are like, uh, and that's another big tell. Of yeah, what you were saying, he's got he's got Scott Weiland on a second album in a row, and that probably feels like respect right. from a well, peer. And all the rappers too, right? Like Method Man, Red Man, DMX, and Exhibit are all on this album. See, Exhibit um, was hosted. Wasn't Exhibit hosting Pimp My Ride by then? Uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, again, I it, so. Again, that is another like tied into the MTV industrial complex. That is totally. not going to make you look cool. Uh, you know, my ride was two thousand four. So okay, so he he this, but... exhibit was still badass at this time. Yes, was still saying. badass. Okay. Well, and it's interesting too because the the get your groove on that was on the album is way better than the one you can get on iTunes and Spotify now. So uh, DJ Lethal originally used a an obscure French sample on get your groove on and it sounds really really cool and good oh no they got caught they got caught he he just thought like ah oh, they'll never this it's like an obscure french band they'll never come after us and then they sued them and now the song has been taken down and it's been replaced with this like really shitty remix that's on itunes and spotify now that is not good at all oh i gotta um, get that then but yeah it was interesting like you were talking about um titling the album and wes says in that guitar world interview that they literally fred said it in an interview and like people thought he was joking. Like he was like, yeah, the album's called chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water. And everybody laughed and they were just like, oh yeah, haha. Like what's it really called? And Fred's like, what, you don't think we can call an album that? And he, he Wes like literally says in this interview, it was essentially Fred like challenging people being like, you don't think we could have a successful album with such a stupid name. Um, and for those of you who are wondering, obviously chocolate starfish is a reference to the anus. And then the hot dog flavored water is a, just a joke that the band that it was an in joke with the band that Wes Borland uh, 
uh, one night was making fun of sparkling water and how there were no meat flavors of sparkling water and that there should be a hot dog flavored crystal geyser water. Um, and then that like became a running joke in the band of like, Oh, does this gas station have hot dog flavored water? Uh, and then that's where it came from. So it was literally Fred, like trying to just be like, yeah, again, trying to like throw it back at people. And I thought this quote was really interesting. I pulled this up and I sent this to you, Brian. Um, this was from the PRP, uh, right around the time that this record came out. And it just, to me, speaks to Fred. Because like, so this is the quote. He says, I always had to have that red cap. Every time I'd step off the bus or do an interview, it was for that red cap guy. I never put me out there. People were feeding off that persona and it was a frenzy. People hated it, but people needed it. Everyone wanted something out of that guy. He was my Tyler dirt inside, a way of dealing with it. It was a product of being really damaged, I think. And like, I don't think... For a, I don't think Fred Durst was ever a different guy. I think Fred Durst was Fred Durst 100% of the time, whether he had a red hat on or a Navy hat on or no hat on. Like Fred's trying to make it sound like it, it's a very like Eminem type quote, right? Like, you know, Eminem always says like, I have Slim Shady and then I have Marshall Mathers and they're two very different people. And like, and you can kind of feel that, you know, when he's rapping, you can feel that there's like a dark and tortured side that he taps into to write his raps with Fred. I don't believe that there's a side of him like that, that exists. Like this is just Fred trying to create this, like, yeah, I'm not really that guy. Like, I'm just trying to be like, I'm just trying to be out there and people hate me. They hate this red cap guy, but like, let's be honest, like he's just, he's not me. And it's like, no, nah, it is. It's you a hundred percent of the time. People hate you, dude. Get, get into it. You know, it's sort of, yeah, I, I think that's a performers thing though. I, I, I'm starting to believe this. The more performers I meet is that like, they are the people on stage, but they like want, they don't want anybody to know that they're actually the person on stage because then you're like liable for the things you say on stage. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know? And I think that like, uh, uh, that's why Fred did that. I mean, also it's a little bit of lore building for him, but, uh, uh, I do think that like a lot of people use that as a cop out. Cause I always say I'm not, you know, Oh, I don't sit around and I'm not murder Brian with my wife, but like to be fucking completely honest, I am. <laughs> like 99% of the time Brian. I can't help yeah him. well murder Brian is just like me you know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like, the most successful entertainers are people who are able to be themselves but maybe turn it up a little bit you yeah know, you hear that a lot it's like a turned up version of me or whatever but doing but doing Tyler and and the fight club references are oh, I mean I mean on. well come on dude you want to do fucking timeless music do you read did you really think fucking people I mean people are still talking about fight club he was sort of right on that fight club has kind of Hmm, I don't know. That'd be a good poll question. <laughs> Does, it's like I, I, for me, I think it's, it's not even so much that it's more the, like the idea that like, Oh, I'm actually like pretty damaged when you get down to it. And it's like, guy, like you're not, I mean, I, or at least I don't believe you're very damaged. You're not like, deep. I, you're not deep. Like I don't <laughs> see this side of you. I don't see people being like, Oh man, I, I bet there's so many sides to that Fred Durst. And and the side we see is like a deep, dark, damaged side. It's like, 
Yeah, you're out there talking about fake ass titties on a fucked up chest, man. I don't think anyone believes that you're like tapping in some Tyler Durden shit. Um, we talked about kind of dangerous, some kind of fucking. You don't want him tapping into that, man. He will lead yeah, your, your you kids down the wrong it. path. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, we've talked about Fred a lot. Before we get into um, our our tw- our score and all that stuff, um, let's just talk a little bit about the songs on the album. Um, what were, what were some of the songs that really stood out to you on, on the record? My Jenna generation, life in the fast lane, life in the fast or living it up. It's called living it up. But, uh, uh, fun fact about that. They also paid royalties to the Eagles just for having, just for saying life in the fast lane and playing like a brief Eagle sample behind it. But it works, dude. That song motherfucking works, dude. Yeah. It's a good song. I mean, I think it's my favorite one on here. And hot dog. <laughs> what? This is dedicated to you, Ben Stiller. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And hot dog is one that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And uh, uh, so big. Yeah. <sighs> like, it's just, yeah, that's a classic West Borland, just like massive fucking chunky riff. John Otto's drums just like pop out of the out of the headphones yeah i also i mean but it's a great song the big thing for me is that like i have to say that like none of these songs are bad you know uh uh, the singles are 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 just the singles are top fucking level it's too bad this isn't an ep because it might be considered one of the best eps you know (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, I agree. Like to me, um, I think this is a better album than significant other, which I think crazy. I just, it might be though. You know what? I I hate to take your side. (laughs) Makes me feel worse than significant other, but there's no clunkers on this album. Like significant others back half is not that great. Like there's some good songs on it, but there's some clunkers. It's not like significant others, not an album you can put on front to back. And you're like, every song on this is great. Whereas like listening back to this album and maybe it's just cause it's 2020. Like, I don't think I was that into, pardon me. I don't think I was that into every song when I was younger, but like listening back to this, I'm like, Every song on this record absolutely goes. I mean, I was headbanging in the store today. I went, yeah, it, it, I had to it, go it, get shit, and I was going fucking nuts to the every song. Totally. And that's the thing. It's like every song, it's like huge riffs. It's super catchy. Even if the lyrics aren't great, they're fun to sing. Like my generation, roll in my way. They're all fun songs to sing. And then like you know, I think Take a Look Around is one of Limp Bizkit's best songs. I think Boiler is one of their best songs. Um, you know, and I know we've talked about Boiler before, and I feel like you said you didn't like it, but I love that song. That like that that beginning, that like just the way the drums are are done in that, the way they're produced, and it's just such a huge song. It, that one to me has like the lyrical feel of rearranged. It's like the same kind of like you scorned me. You've let me down. It, it's like one of the few songs on here where the lyrics actually like kind of make sense. And you're like, okay, he's not like just trying to be a goofball here. Like this is actually like a song he cares about. Like it almost feels like boiler might've been like the first song he wrote lyrics to where he was still like a little bit mad at the ex-girlfriend that he's mad uh, on an unsignificant other. Uh, <laughs> 
and then he, and then he's like ah shit now i got writer's block i don't know what else to write about and then he like went off to yeah go to a bunch of parties and and do a ton of drugs and then be like oh shit i gotta write these lyrics okay fuck how, maybe if i say fuck 57 times in a song it'll be cool can i just say like this motherfucker got writer's block and then <laughs> When he finally got out on the other side of it, this is like what, like the guy didn't get past the writer's block. It's kind of incredible, really, that this came out. He still had writer's block when when he wrote this. Damn, never broke. You never. Did you think like it's like if you hadn't written a new set and you just you're like, fine, I'll fucking you know, for me and Brett, this is how it works. Fine, I'll book. I'll book like a thing and then we'll figure out the set, you know, on the way to it, you know, you got to kind of throw yourself. You're not supposed to fucking do that when you're recording something, you know, and and putting it out forever. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's truly, uh, it's truly wild, but it's funny. Like Wes makes some references in that guitar world interview to like Fred needing to get the lyrics done. Like it, it seems like they actually gave interscope, like a time like that they like even though significant other had only come out like a year before it seems like they went to them and they were like yep we'll be done this record by x date and the way Wes kind of talks about fred finishing off the lyrics does kind of like almost reference that that like it was like well fred was really up against the gun and he knew he had to like get this done and he had crazy writer's block and whatever and so i I, yeah maybe i agree with you like that these are just like unfinished lyrical ideas (laughs) uh like i'm gonna have a fucking nightmare tonight thinking about like booking a show and then showing up on stage and doing fucking hot dog up there Yeah, you're like, if I just keep, well, I mean, this is spoken from two guys who did one POD cast live show and we got the crowd to sing along to Macy Gray with us. So, right. Uh, so maybe we're not ones to talk, but uh, well, you can always pull something out, you know, like I, I think that like people that are pretty good can make a thing happen, you know, like me and you were able to make it happen. Uh, he's not me. No, no for sure. Yeah. He's not that good. <laughs> And he he just isn't a guy, you know, not a thoughtful guy. No, I don't think like he is really writing about the most generic when, when you really start to like, like analyze, like what he's writing. It's like, still, it's maybe more high school than corn. Really? It's like, ultra high school politics he's even talking to the the bullies the mean kids which are trent Reznor and the music critics and stuff like that like it's all of that shit this probably has more teenage energy than any of the corn albums came close to i think the thing with uh i think the thing too is that like with corn even if jonathan davis was saying sort of like more elementary stuff he was a really really good singer so the so the like the the lyrics didn't matter as much because he has such an interesting voice and you know we talked about that we we reviewed the queen of the damned soundtrack on our patreon this month with jay sunderesh and we talked about that because on the queen of the damned soundtrack 
Jonathan Davis was not contractually uh, allowed to appear on the soundtrack release. And so he got five new metal singers. Uh, you got Wayne static, David Draymond from disturbed Chester Bennington from Lincoln park, uh, Jay Gordon from orgy and Marilyn Manson to sing his vocals. And then when you listen to the versions with Jonathan Davis, they're just so much more interesting. He just has such a good voice. Whereas like Fred does not have that working for him. Like Fred has a nasally voice. It's very forward in the mix. You can hear every word he's saying. So it's like the words got to be kind of good because you're not delivering on the vocal performance. Um, and I think that that really, that really kind of lets him down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's sad. It's su- it sucks that he was like a dude that like not, a, he's just not, I don't think he's a writer. I don't, I I really don't think he's like a thoughtful guy. And I also think it's really hard. You know, you, you said this on the street fight show. We did the, the, the thing over there that like Corm were writing songs for 13 to 18 year old boys when they were 40, even, you know, <laughs> yeah. like they were writing these songs and they were able to do it in a way where like Jonathan Davis would just adjust the uh, uh, content just enough so that it was an adult man singing about it and that the problems kind of morphed and changed as, as it went. So on that first album, it's just like, let's get all of the demons out from my childhood on life is peachy. You know, we're, we're, we're getting a little happier, you know, we're having a little bit of success. We're feeling, we're feeling maybe a little pressure yeah, and dreaming about sex now. Yeah. Like, things are going well. And then for uh follow the leader, that was the transition into like, Hey, uh, being famous is like, not incredible is not easy as easy as it sounds like it supposed to be. <laughs> and that kind of carried them in through the rest of the time. And then you would take your own shit in your head and apply it to the kind of things he was saying about being famous. I think Fred Durst, did not change that content once. It was all about like ex-girlfriends, but not like ex-girlfriends in a way that's very deep or he's writing about these relationships he's having in more of a uh, meme they share on like a broken-hearted people's Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Um let's get to our let's get to our score here. Uh we for those of you who are new to the show, uh if you're new, hello, welcome. Thank you for listening. Um we're a year in now, so you got a bunch of back episodes you can listen to. But uh we do a, a tweet defense score. So this is uh if someone were to tweet at you that Chocolate Starfish is a bad album, uh how many tweets would you do uh to defend the album? Brian, I will I'll let you go first. So I've put myself in a weird position now because I'm a journalist and I want my scores to be as accurate as they can possibly be. And uh, so I can't in, in my right mind, leave the world thinking that I like disturbed way, way more than this album, which I gave disturbed a 26 or 36, right? A 26. A 26. I gave Disturbed a 26. Uh, I have made a vow that I would never make anything higher than Disturbed, which puts me in like kind of a pickle here. And that's why I'm going to say 25 
And then I would write 90% of a really mean tweet to end the conversation and then delete it. So that's like a 25 and a half uh, uh, score that I'm giving it 25 and a draft. Nice. Okay. I like that. Um, (laughs) I'm in a draft. Um, I'm going to go. I think I'll go 11 on this one. Uh, Oh, that is high for you though. That's like, you're really. Yeah. Well, I just think, cause it's a combination of, I think this album is very good. One of my favorite things on earth is to go to bat for Wes, Sam and John. I feel like I almost feel like I'm their caretaker or something. Like I, I feel like every time Limp Bizkit comes up on this show or anytime I talk about Limp Bizkit in life, I'm just like, yeah, but John, Sam and uh, Wes, pretty good players. Am I right? You did do a thing where you made it. This show's very biased now. Because yeah. you know how I feel about Wes, but then you went and were like, uh, hey, I'll cherry pick some facts and uh, get Brian to turn against uh, Fred Durson instead stick up for Wes. Yeah, that's what I did. The, you know, Fox News stuff. Transparent. Oh, what can I say? Yeah. Uh, but I would, uh, yeah, so I, I would say there's just so many fun facts about this band too. Like they're one of those bands that you can have a conversation on Twitter about. And people love it. Like they love to hear weird Limp Bizkit facts. They love to talk about Limp Bizkit. Like they're just such a fascinating band. So I, I would I would say 11. I'd have no problem defending the album. No problem talking about how good the musicians are. And no problem talking about weird Limp Bizkit facts. So that's where I'm at. I, I think like I'm ready to say that. Uh, uh, God damn. This is so hard to figure out. I have my three favorites that are pretty much everybody's three favorites. Uh, uh, I would almost sort of straddle. <sighs> so hard. I guess I do like corn a lot more than I like Limp Biscuit in these times, but man, I could see, I think my top three now are like one Deftones and then two and three our corn and lint biscuit. And you're going to have to ask me on the specific day. Right. For I, I me to tell it, you. Like, lint biscuit is fun in a way that corn's not like lint biscuit. You can put their records on when you're like you say, walking down the street in the store, there's a quality to their music that has just a kind of fun, you know, bouncy quality to it. That maybe corn, corn is more of a mood thing. Not follow the leader, probably follow the leaders like pretty maximalist and fun to listen to. But like, Early corn and even like issues and untouchables corn is like a little bit more dense. You, I feel like I got to be in the right frame of mind. Oh, uh, for sure. I, I I don't think I could you know listen to corn right now. But when I am in the mood for corn, they're the best band in the fucking world. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, an amazing band, no question. Um. So before we get to the challenge, I uh, just wanna we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but uh, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash the POD cast with a K like the aforementioned corn. Uh, it's $4 a month. And then every month for that $4, uh, you get a bonus episode. Uh, we usually do a compilation record. Um, so like I said, this past month, we did uh, the queen of the damned soundtrack with J.S. Sunderesh, which was super fun. Uh, this month coming up in September, we're going to be doing the Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack. So this is a very uh, take a look around heavy month. Uh, we've got some great guests booked uh, for the next couple months. Uh, so it's going to be a blast. And we also we send out emails and let you know what uh, what albums we're going to be reviewing and everything. So it's a it's a fun place to be. So you can head o- head on over to patreon.com slash the POD cast and check that out. And, and if you want to donate $50 to the show, you can tell us what album to do for a bonus episode. So if there's something you're dying to hear, 
uh, that you haven't heard yet. Mission Impossible 2 was a commission from Kylan. So thank Ohms. you. And uh, yeah, you can you can do that. You can also follow us on Twitter at the POD underscore cast. Uh, again, that's cast with a K. Uh, that's where all the polls are done. Uh, we're tweeting about episodes. We uh, we share a lot of new metal news stories and everything like that. So you can follow us over there. And uh, you can just rate and review the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. That's always uh, it's always good to do. Uh, it has been a year doing this show. I think we're both pretty amazed at how many people listen to the show and and how many people support the show. And and we really appreciate it. It just kind of started as a lark. And uh, now here we are a year later and uh, we've got a lot of fans and followers and and we really appreciate it. So thanks everybody for tuning in over the past year. Uh, now to the challenge, uh, Brian, this was your idea. Uh, for, again, for those of you who are new to the show, we always finish off the show with a challenge, which is uh, usually related to the band. So this was uh, because both of us obviously glommed on to hot dog uh, so tightly. Uh, we imagined if we were Fred Durst and we were going to write a sarcastic a diss track about a band um th- who would we write it about what would it be about um and so we're going to give you the band we would write it about the name of the song and what the chorus would be but the chorus again would just be like sarcastically making fun of of the band so uh brian uh, you uh you go first i i also want to say that hot dog is a song that has the most psychology of any other song that's been on this show and that's why we're so fascinated yeah, with it like there's, there's on there there's a the hundred times more psychology in hot dog than what it's like by everclass the pre everlast the previous holder of the most psychology True. album <laughs> well you just wouldn't know what it's like brian unless everlast told you <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it really fucking makes you think. You sit around and you rub your chin sagely and you just consider, you know, put yourself in fucking somebody else's shoes for once, man. You yeah. know? Yeah, no. Uh, um, so I I have two bands that I hate in this world. One of them is uh, Dire Straits. Uh, I fucking hate them. I hate that Discount Microwave Oven song, you know? like my uh, least uh, favorite song in the world what i don't know anything about dire straits do you know the discount microwave oven i don't know sure. we got the discount microwave oven custom kitchen delivery you don't know that one Ugh. god you're a youngster um okay but since i do a podcast with a canadian guy i'm going with my other least favorite uh uh band and that's bare naked ladies okay nice and uh i would call the song i i don't know like uh uh like maybe we'll go with like fuck your apartment because don't they have that apartment song which i hate and then in the chorus or maybe this would maybe be more like in a verse I'll, i'll be like uh uh your rhymes are wait wait I see I have a thing in my mind I can't like really pull it off uh uh hold on one second uh I'm gonna take it to the streets and you're one week like you said week w e a k 
Nice. That's, it. That's like basically that. your your rhymes are one week or some some sort of thing in there. I've been trying to think of it for fucking three hours now since I knew what we were doing, like and that. I couldn't quite get it. But it's oh, it's God. you know that's good. Uh, no, it was bad. That was oh, like that was it. a pathetic for the one year challenge, and I deserve to lose. Well, you won. I should say I, I got the poll up pretty late, but you you won the last challenge, uh, the the mask challenge from the Static X episode. So I think we ended the year. Brian Alvarez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? So I think I think people liked that you were going to do Joe Rogan, that you were going to be on uh, <laughs> oh. Joe Rogan. <laughs> okay. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're. You, so I think we finished the year seven, four, and one. I think I won seven challenges. You won four, and we tied one. I think that sounds fair, though. That's really you deserve them a lot more <laughs> than me. You're better at it. You well, know. Uh, so this is uh, for those of you longtime listeners of the show. Brian always accuses me of hating System of a Down. Uh, so I figure I might as well lean into it. Don't do so, this. No, I'm doing it. So this is, but I, I really wanted to get into like, you said the psychology, the, the, you wanted to get into the psychology of Fred Durst. So here, I, this is me getting into the psychology of Fred Durst. Okay. I think that he would call them system of a frown. Okay. He, he's Fred and he's like, you know, that's how not lame. good at like not coming up with this is system of a frown. The song would be called, it'd be a play on BYOB. Uh, but instead of System of a Down's Bring Your Own Bombs, it would be called Bring Your Own Bitch. Uh, okay. That's a Fred, you know, I personally would not use those terms. Again, I'm in Fred Durst's head right now. Just heavy metal, dude. The chorus of the song would be Fred uh, super pitching up his vocals. Because <laughs> in BYOB, they have the like, why don't presidents fight the war? Why do they always send the poor? So he would do that, but pitched up and it would be on top of the itchy and scratchy theme song. So like the beat, the regular song would be just kind of like new metal. And then out of nowhere, it would be like a new metal version of the itchy and scratchy song with like, why don't presidents fight the war? Why do they always send the poor? Why don't presidents fight the war? Why do they always send the poor? Um, and that would be the chorus of the song system of a frown. So, okay. Yeah my Fred Durst distract to system of a down who most certainly did not respect Limp Bizkit. Um, and Fred is definitely mad about it. I mean, they probably got along though. <laughs> who knows? System of a down are a hard band to read the drummer yeah, yeah, yeah. along with Fred, <laughs> the right wing yeah. or a uh, John Dolman. Well, I don't think Fred would be right wing though. Do you, I think he was a Bernie oh, guy. Yeah, he's probably liberal. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, he um, wants to be so Hollywood so Hollywood. bad understand people that are like john um now brian this is normally where we would do the poll oh we're not doing one we're not doing a poll uh because i i have well i think you'll be happy about this though i have a surprise for you uh so so jordan yule past bonus guest of the show reached out uh to me because he felt bad that he fucked up the previous poll because what happened was jordan tweeted the poll and Jordan has over 200,000 followers on Twitter and he told people to vote for chocolate starfish. And then he felt really guilty when chocolate starfish won the poll. Cause he felt like he, uh, bent the results of the poll and he knows how much it means to you. Uh, so he has donated the $50 to the show so that next month you and I can review orgies candy ass. Oh, yay. Okay. I like that. I like that. I was kind of having a little panic attack anyway. I know you love doing the poll. 
and so do I, but, uh, yeah, Jordan reached out like a couple weeks ago and he was like, I feel really bad. What can I do? And I was like, well, we have the, we have the option. So Jordan has, has donated 50 bucks and we will be next month. We'll be reviewing orgies candy ass just for you, Brian. I think you put them up on the poll five times four to show four times just goes to show that persistence pays off. And I don't really know it. I know their cover of blue Monday, but that's about all I know. So I'm, I'm I love this album. I love it. Well, that's what we're doing next month. So you can look forward to uh, later in September mission impossible Two with a great guest. Um, and then we'll be, uh, reviewing orgies candy ass in October. So you got lots of time to prepare. Uh, thank you again, everyone for listening to the show. Uh, it's been a fantastic year. We really appreciate all of you listening, tweeting about us, donating to the show. It's, it's awesome. It means a lot to us. And again, if you want to donate to the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash the POD cast, or you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash the POD underscore cast. And that's cast with a K like the band corn. We'll see you back here next month. Goodbye.